<laughs> anyway. But then you hit record and you're out the door. Anyway. Our whole relationship is a CD skipping away. Crush on Ray. guitar yeah yeah i could go grab my keyboard and and you can grab your bass and we can have like an impromptu jam session that's going to sound absolutely terrible Ace. because you're the only trained a musician. skype jam yes <laughs> one that would sound terrible because you're the I have only little trained to no training musician. Mm. Well, self-trained that counts yeah i suppose um i always uh i don't know very little about acoustic guitars but i believe that Martins tend to be a little bit bassier than, say, a Taylor guitar. Um, so I've always had a, a soft spot for Martins. And if I was going to buy acoustic, an acoustic guitar, uh, it would probably be one of those. Yeah. And I mean, Martins are, you know, really good. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, uh, I, I, my dad has always wanted one and he finally got one about, geez, I think this is probably about five, ten years old now. I don't remember, mm. but, but yeah, it's, and it's a wonderful guitar. Yeah, like great, great sound on it and everything. I just, you know, and it plays great too. So yeah, is it a dreadnought or a cutaway? Uh, it's basically the uh, just a standard shaped acoustic. Like uh, I don't know what 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 particular flavor, mm-hmm. but it's it's basically just the. It, it looks like the uh, what you probably think of when you think of an acoustic guitar. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Have you played an acoustic bass at all, Andrew? An upright bass or an acoustic no, bass? No, ac- acoustic guitar <laughs> bass. An acoustic, yeah, I've had two over the years. I had an Ibanez AEB10, I think it was called. Um, and it was terrible. <laughs> uh, I think I paid like 300 bucks for it or something and, and it just was not that great and I did not enjoy playing it. And then, but it's tough because the problem with acoustic bass guitars I believe is the technical term, uh, is that because of the bass's inherent low frequency, it is difficult to uh, be heard when it is unamplified. Um, so the pitch is so low that it's difficult to hear it uh, unless you have an amplifier, and um, <clears throat> which kind of sucks because you know when you're around the campfire or you're at the beach or something, and you know people have their acoustic guitars, you can't. You know, you're at a significant disadvantage being a bass player because nobody can hear your sweet low frequency uh, rumblings. Um, so the Ibanez was not that great, but then I fell for it again and purchased a five-string fretless Michael Kelly uh, Dragonfly acoustic bass guitar, which was better in terms of construction and playability, and it was even a little bit more audible because um, because it was fretless. I like to think. Um, but still not, not tremendously enjoyable to play. Um, so my experience with acoustic bass guitars has not been wonderful. Although, <clears throat> funny you should mention this, Rich, because Bill Laswell, uh, I see, uh, according to notrouble.com has just put out a new solo album that is, uh, entirely himself solo on a 
Warwick, Allen, uh, Alien, Fretless, Acoustic, Bass Guitar. Uh, so I'll have to uh, check that out. But it's an interesting sort of hybrid instrument, but I haven't had the greatest experience. What I want to get is either a, a resonator, acoustic, like a dobro bass, which Les Claypool uses on a few tunes, um, which is a lot kind of clankier and a lot more audible subsequently. Um, <clears throat> and there's also a banjo bass uh, that would probably, I believe, be significantly louder than a acoustic bass guitar, which Les also uses on, on several songs. But I haven't had the extra cash to purchase either of those instruments. Yeah, I like the way like Dobro's sound anyway, too. I mean, it's with that that metal plate, it really it has a, it gives it such a, a really cool quality to the sound. Yeah, Les actually did a uh, a couple of one off shows with the duo de twang, he called it, um, which was himself on Dobro bass and then uh, Merv. I forget his real name. Merv Gerenstein is who he always calls what he always calls him. Uh, but it was just the two of them. <clears throat> On acoustic bass and acoustic guitar. Well, both of them resonators. And, uh, they did, you know, a series of Primus tunes and, uh, you know, some covers and stuff. But it was really good. You know, it was like bluegrass renditions of, uh, of the Primus songs. I'll throw this in the, in the robot for you, Matt, because I think you would enjoy some of these. Awesome. Um, yeah, but it was nice. Uh, so yeah, the, um, you can just kind of tell like the resonator bass would be a lot louder because it has that clankier feel to it. And, uh, it would serve me well, I think. I have no experience with resonator basses, but uh, one of my uh, things I did back in Philadelphia is uh, this amazing blues musician played at the bar across the street from me, and he played a steel resonator guitar, or I don't know if it was steel, but it was a metal guitar body with a resonator plate. And he played bottleneck slide, and that was that thing got loud, and that was, but he was really good with it. Yeah, yeah, I would like to. I, I'll hopefully own one eventually, but I just don't have the funds at the moment. <clears throat> yeah. My my dad actually makes um cigar box guitars and he's actually made a, a normal guitar too. Like but um I've been trying to trying to get him to do uh one where you where it's basically a cigar box but with a um uh like what I'm what I'm kinda thinking is because I mean it's all sort of like the homemade kind of thing is getting like kind of like a walk, you know, type of type of thing, you know. And then putting it in a box and then, you know, wiring that up and then stringing it that way. Because I think that would sound really cool. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's basically a Dobro, but, you know, Dobro, Dobro cigar box. But Yeah, I was at a, uh, I saw, uh, I was at the Echo Project Festival in 2007, which only happened once. I don't know what happened to it. Um, it was in Atlanta or outside of Atlanta, Fairburn, Georgia. And, uh, Les was doing a solo set there. Uh, well, it was him and Mike Dillon on drums and I think Skarek on saxophone. So it was just like a, a fancy trio, he called it. Um, and he brought out the, the banjo bass to do a, um, he went into Master of Puppets, uh, on the banjo bass and it, uh, died on him right in the middle of it. And, uh, <clears throat> there's a great YouTube video of that and he, you know, has to, kind of banter with the crowd while it's broken and while his tech tries to fix it. So I'll put that in the show notes too. Um, or less. <laughs> yeah. uh, he claimed that because it was uh, in 2007, he uh, he had sort of a small, I don't know, I haven't seen the movie, but he was he had a role in this movie called Pig Hunt, um, which was about this huge pig that kind of terrorizes people in California. And uh, 
on like the second day of shooting or something, he broke his pinky finger and, uh, ah. his doctor, yeah, his doctor said he could not, you know, you shouldn't go on tour because, you know, your, your pinky is broken. Um, but he went on tour anyway and just used, uh, his three fingers. Uh, it was his left hand. So, uh, but he claimed that, uh, they had to stick like a, a rod in his pinky or something and now it will never be completely straight or, or whatever. And, um, but he said that because of the power of, of modern bionics and technology, he can use the pinky once again. But because of the awesome power that his new robotic pinky exudes, it uh, clearly broke his equipment. <laughs> <laughs> Classic moment there. Good there stuff. Face breaks. Yeah, I, that's one of the things I, I've always loved with Primus is, I mean, like, Les is incredibly witty on the fly. So it's like, you know, it's like he, he always, you know, his banter, you know, there might not be a lot of it, but what there is is usually like a pretty, pretty quality. Yeah, for sure. Uh, did I? No, I was going to say the Boston show we already talked about. Um, so, Staples banjo bass breaks. Yeah, I think you can actually see me in the uh, in the front row uh, against the rail when when it actually uh, when they fix it and the uh, the sound comes back in and the crowd cheers and stuff. Um, you can actually see and me and my girlfriend at the time. So pretty cool. Sweet. How are you guys? I survived. How's the uh, the Sandy Hurricane treating you, uh, Rich, down there in the in the Big Apple? I don't want to talk about it. You have power, I see. Yes, and internet. Now it's just the subway. He's is, actually on a on a bike, uh, powering it. <laughs> so, like by the end of the podcast, he's going to be. <sighs> I'm sans point <sighs> dot com. <laughs> now, the worst that happened to us was that we lost internet the night of the storm around eleven o'clock, which was basically our cue to just go to bed. So, um. Now, it's just the subways are completely screwing right now. Um, in fact, last night, um, Cassandra and I, we went in, you know, we we're tired of staying home or whatever, and well, and then going to work uh, the, the half of the week, but we wanted to go out and have some fun, so we went into the city, had a good time, because they got the power down, power on back in lower Manhattan again, but, uh, you know, the train that we run, take, it only goes to 34th Street in Manhattan now, uh, hopefully that'll be less hopefully they'll have it running the whole way tomorrow but so we get we're on our way back home we we walk all the way back to 34th street and 6th avenue we get on the train the train's not going anywhere eh, whatever it's it's the start of the line we're in no rush to get home conductor comes, comes on someone on the train that was pulling into the station pulled the emergency brake and that <sighs> means the train is stuck in the tunnel and that means that no train can get past it and that means that no train coming in or leaving can get past it. And we were there for a good hour and a half. Oh, man. Uh, what happens when you pull the emergency brake on a public transport vehicle? Um, in a, Like, does the doctor stop it? It stops, yeah. And if you pull the emergency brake on a public transportation vehicle in any rightful in any universe uh, where people have some sanity, you will get the shit beaten out of you. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, um, I assume that uh, if there was an emergency when it was pulled, there was one after it was pulled from them beating that dude to death. <laughs> yeah, 
basically there is exactly one time when you when a passenger should pull the emergency brake in a subway car, and that is when the subway train is rattle is going out of control at top speed and the conductor is dead, mm. <laughs> or at the very least not in the train. So, so was there a reason for him pulling the emergency brake? Hell if I know. At the least emer- it wasn't my. But yeah, we eventually did get home. So and then we had mead. Mm. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So. That's good. Otherwise, you'd be like, you know, recording the podcast from the the train. It'd be like that, uh, that old folk song. Um, what is it? Uh, Johnny on the MTA. Is that mm. actually a song? Yeah. Um, it's it was uh by I want to say the uh God uh was it the four freshmen? I can't remember, but it, it was basically a the the joke of the song, and it was like kind of a political like a political folk song, but it was about um, where they were going to charge like an exit fee on the train instead of like the normal fare. Mm. And basically the joke was that Johnny didn't have the nickel to get off. So he was stuck on the MTA forever and his wife would come down every day to like basically, you know, throw him his lunch and and whatnot, but he could never get off the train because I guess his, his wife was too stupid to throw a nickel in the lunch or whatever. (laughs) <laughs> yeah if you can find that throw it in the show notes yeah uh let me uh see if i can i'll uh google that up real quick it's, it's and it's it's kind of a it, i mean it's a, it's uh, it's like i said i mean it's a political song but it's it's a funny uh, oh, okay it's called the mta song is what it's uh kingston trio but yeah, it was just one of those ones where I just kind of thought of it all, you know, when you were talking about being stuck on the train and <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I know too many weird ass songs. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I've never been stuck on a train. <laughs> Your time will come. Um, <laughs> speaking of weird ass songs, I guess that's probably as good of a segue as we can get into uh, our picks this week. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> Because at least one of these albums has some weird ass songs. Um, looking at you, Matt. Except that I'm not actually looking oh. at you because we're on the uh, internet. Um, yeah, I couldn't tell who you were talking about there. Yeah, I actually thought you were talking about yourself. <laughs> uh, I don't oh. know. I went first last time, so I vote that I go first because, as our listeners may notice, I'm combating the final siege of some viral plague. And uh, if my voice goes out, it should be after I discuss uh, Discovery by Daft Punk. Okay. So I think we should talk about that first. Um, so I knew the only thing, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to make use of the cough button today. <laughs> the only uh, familiarity that I have had with Daft Punk, Daft Punk is that I knew that they did the, the Tron soundtrack for Disney's Tron. And I always saw on Twitter that lots of people would always put that on, put that soundtrack on very loudly while they were programming or writing code or something like that. And, um, you know, I'm not, you generally one to listen to music while I work. It would be writing in my case. Um, usually I listen to, to instrumental type stuff, but I assumed that, um, for whatever reason, the preconceived notion that I had about Daft Punk was that it was electronic, uh, instrumental mostly. Um, so I, I acquired the, the Tron's, the Tron soundtrack and, uh, it was okay. I didn't, I'm not a big 
Tron fan. I don't really know anything about it other than it used to be an old video game. Um, and uh, so I gave it like one listen or two, and uh, it didn't really do that much for me. Um, but then I think I actually uh, saw Umphreys McGee. Uh, I forget what show it was, but they did a cover of uh, Voyager, uh, which is from the Discovery album. And I, uh, I enjoyed, you know, their cover as I always do. And as I always do, I decided to go and check out the original. Um, so I did a little bit of research about Daft Punk and saw that it was from the Discovery album, which is arguably, I guess, one of their more popular albums or, uh, at least a good album to start with. And, um, you know, it took me a few listens, but I come, I came to really enjoy, uh, the record as a whole. And I was a little taken aback at first because one more time is the leadoff track which, you know, is everywhere, especially when you work on a college campus, as I have uh, for for several years. Um, so I was a little disconcerted about that song, uh, but I listened to the rest of the record and really sort of enjoyed it. And, and as we know, I'm not a big electronic music um, connoisseur, but for some reason this album has managed to break through and uh, really resonate with me. Um, the song that I picked uh, out of all of them, and I think they're all quite good, is uh, Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger, which we can play for the folks now. And I just picked that song because it's, uh, I found it to be very catchy and very funky and, uh, kind of, you know, it gets you in a good mood. It gets you kind of grooving a little bit and, uh, kind of raises the spirits. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, I think, I believe that the two of you are, are Daft Punk fans to at least some degree. Um, so maybe you guys can elucidate why this electronic music, um, might stand out to me more than the typical electronic music that we've discussed on this podcast. So um, overall, I just really like the record. It's, I find the songs very catchy and uh, quite funky in spots, and uh, it's very listenable, whereas I think some electronic music tends to not be so listenable for me. So there you go. Okay. Um, yeah, I uh, I wouldn't say I'm a huge Daft Punk fan, but I do like them. Uh, mm-hmm. like my favorite album by them is their uh, live album, uh, Alive 2007. Uh, though if we're, if we're going to limit ourselves to studio works, uh, I'm going to actually say the album they put out after this, uh, which was, uh, uh, oh gosh darn it, why can't I remember the title? Is that a Human After All? Human After All, yeah. Daft. No, not the remix one. Oh, that's, <laughs> yeah, like Human After All here. is the, uh, is the one I, uh, is my favorite of the studio albums. Um, but this is, yeah, um, yeah, Discovery is a really great record, I think. Um, I don't. One of the things that makes house music so interesting, and I say I'm not really one who's a connoisseur of house music, but it's sort of the evolution, I think, of, okay, I'm going to go very um, nerd here, if mm. that's okay with you guys. Always. There are- I, I, I think, I think, I think our, our listeners, uh, both of them would be surprised if we didn't. Okay. <laughs> uh, there are two main schools of electronic music. You've got the Berlin School. Which is, uh, the, I mean, these, these, these schools developed in the seventies, uh, and, and you got the Berlin school and you've got the Dusseldorf school. And obviously you can tell from the names of the schools that this is from Germany. And 
because a lot of what we consider modern electronic music came as sort of an evolution of krautrock. And so the Berlin School was is sort of gave us like ambient music, trance music, this like long droney, uh, not necessarily danceable music, but I've seen people dance to that kind of stuff, um, which I'm not a terribly a fan of. But it's I think the the more successful school has been the Dusseldorf School, which is the school of uh, electronic music that gave us Kraftwerk, who have been described as the Beatles of electronic music. In a good way, and mm-hmm. so you know, their their music uh, gave us is it, there's a direct progression between what Kraftwerk was doing in the 70s and early 80s to house music and to Daft Punk because there's a strong emphasis in the Dusseldorf School on melody, on rhythm, and vocals too. Yeah, you know, your 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 Berlin School is all you know music to get stoned to. Your your Dusseldorf school is music to listen to and shake your butt to. Oh. So can you guys maybe concern for for me and maybe some of our listeners what the difference is between like electronic versus house versus trance versus dance? Because like the Discovery album is for me very danceable. And I guess I'm not familiar with the with the rest of their discography quite yet. But from what I've read it uh there's a shift in the sound um from house music uh, on their first record, Homework, uh, which was 1997, according to Wikipedia. And apparently this record is a little bit more of a disco, post-disco, synth-pop-inspired house uh, sound. So I'm just wondering what the differences is, if you guys know the differences, um, because well, I find this record very danceable. And even though I'm not much of a dancer, I find it uh, maybe that helps the, the listenableness of it, because it is kind of more melodic and, and groove-oriented. Okay. Well, uh, electronic music as a whole it covers all of those subgenres. What you listed is basically a bunch of subgenres of electronic music. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm not gonna. I don't know too much about like the individual sub 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 super subgenres, but like house music is more you know dancey, pop you know fun music. I mean, it was created for, as the name sort of implies, house parties where people would go and get drunk and take drugs and dance. Um. Yeah, and I mean, I think I, I tend to think of house as kind of the more four on the floor, boo, 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 kind of kind of music. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's there's a lot of variation in how those in that four four beat, but there is that. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. There's always that danceability to it. House music is fun. Um, I think it's a good criteria. Um, I mean, there's bad house music too, but and when you get into this stuff, there's uh, all kinds of subgenres that basically like. Uh, based on round different sounds, different tempos. Um, got some kind of crazy shit like uh, Gabba Gabber, which is we have songs that are like a couple hundred beats per minute, which is just ridiculous. And I have no like um like uh for example, if and, and this might date me, and I don't even know if you guys are old enough to know this reference, but uh, do you guys know the uh um the the music video for the uh uh all your bass are belong to us. Yes, that I do know. Um, okay, that that's GABA. For if you know, I mean that's, I mean that that was like intended as GABA, and I think there is a more GABA remix of that, <laughs> even where it's you know. But yeah, it's like that do 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 do, with like crazy synths kind of going and whatnot. Yeah, 
And then, then you got your shit like dubstep, which is all about the bass and the... And I mm. find that difficult to listen to, too. I just... In the world of electronic music, I gravitate more towards the stuff that's fun and danceable. Yeah. Which c- kind of makes my pick this week a little bit of an oddity, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Um, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I like the Discovery album, because it is quite fun. Um, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, and I find most of Daft Punk's discography to be that way. In fact, um, Alive 2007, which you really need to hear, Andrew, is okay. one of those albums that I put on whenever I need a lot of energy to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like the small selection of uh, records I have in, on my phone that are just like my emergency, you know, get yeah. my blood pumping music uh there's the the most the newest devo album something for everybody uh is is one of those um number one in heaven by sparks because i think matt you'll agree with me when those bass synths start on uh transfer the human race if that doesn't make your uh blood start pumping nothing will yeah the ding, 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 ding. and then the drums kick in um trying to think of some other ones that are just really guaranteed to get get me uh get my blood pumping uh early poly six actually i find that the uh the poly six record that really gets me going the most is uh we ate the machine Mm. see i know for me it's a lot of times it's like like noi is like the one that i'm just sort of like yeah it's musical speed almost (laughs) yeah Yeah. and yeah there's probably a few others in here that i'm just can't really think of off the top of my head but yeah that's the great thing about that kind of music um especially that kind of electronic music that Daft Punk does, that it's really high energy, really gets you moving, and, yeah, it's fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. No. It's interesting that you mentioned that uh, Human After All is your favorite uh, Daft Punk record because I'm just perusing the Wikipedia entry, and it says that uh, one of the guys, I don't know how to say his name, Van Galter has stated that the album is an attempt to discover where human feelings reside in music, which sounds good. He later commented that we felt like the third album was about this feeling of either fear or paranoia. The record is not something intended to make you feel good. So I haven't heard the record, but is it it more of a darker, like, is it still fun despite being something that is supposedly about fear and paranoia? I'd say somewhat. Yeah, it's, it is a lot darker, but I mean, it's still pretty good. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like, it's not nearly as fun as say, you know, discovery or homework, but, but yeah, it's there. It's, it's not really a a full on downer either. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really good record. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are you guys familiar with the first record? A bit. Yeah. yeah. It's not my favorite by them, but around the world is a damn catchy song. I mean, it damn well Mm -hmm. has to be because it's, it's a seven something minute song with the only lyrics being around the world, around the world, around the world, around the world. And it takes work to make something like that stick in your head without driving you nuts. Hmm. Yeah. Like I, I, I tend to, I, I like homework. Okay. But yeah, it's not my favorite. I kind of, I kind of tend to think of it as sort of like a, an album by a band that has a lot of potential. Hmm. If that, if that makes sense. And I, and I, and I think that, um, you know, that they have definitely shown their, uh, their potential and embraced it. And like, I, I think I tell you the truth is I think discovery is kind of like their first masterpiece, which seeing as it's their second record <laughs> worked it's out pretty, pretty well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I just put, uh, Humphreys puts all of their, um, shows up 
for download soundboard quality and stuff. And uh, I just put their, their performance of Voyager, um, from the Best Buy Theater in January of this year, uh, in New York City, uh, in Dropbox for you guys to check out. So I think you'll enjoy it. It's a, a well done cover as, as all of their songs are. So. Best Buy Theater. I know that that's right by where I work. Spooky. <laughs> Formerly the Nokia Theater, yes. Okay. By the way, have you seen the um the film that Daft Punk made for for um Discovery called a uh, Interstellar 5555? I have not. I have not. I saw that it's mentioned in the Wikipedia entry. It's really cool. It's an animated uh, anime uh film by the guy who did um Space Station Yamato and like a lot of um a uh, really like classic anime, you know, and it's basically the entire album. And it's like basically about this interstellar pop band that ends up getting kidnapped for, uh, and brought to earth, uh, for like, like kind of like mind control purposes and, and there and stuff like that. And it's, and there's no real dialogue in it. It's the entire soundtrack is pretty much the album. And, it's 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 pretty good. It's it's I, I mean it's, it's not the greatest thing in the world, but it's definitely enjoyable and definitely worth you know seeking out. Mm. It's uh, Leiji uh, Matsumoto is the name of the the director. Okay. So if any of you are anime nerds, you're going to be all like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not a huge anime fan, although I spent some significant time with the Pokemon animated TV series when I was into Pokemon. I always thought Pokemon was a little weird, and I, I mean, I watched it too. I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna like pretend that I'm all like hardcore or anything, but I always did think it was <laughs> weird that it's, it is basically like making sentient animals cockfight. <laughs> <laughs> totally is. Um, yeah, it, it's, big, it's uh, established that they can think and talk and everything, you know, and it's like because yeah. there's that like the one episode where all the Pokemon are stuck on the island, they have like you know, full on subtitles and everything. And it's like, sort of like you're taking these, like basically like little children and making them fight almost to the death. <laughs> Lord of the flies, Pokemon style. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, I don't know how old I was when, when the first two game boy games hit the United States, but I was pretty into it for quite a long time. And the, you know, I just still, I'm not into it now really, but you know, I think, and I don't know about the quality. I'm sure they still sell well for people that are still into the series. But, you know, at the time, it was great. It was, you know, so much depth and, you know, customization and exploration. And it was probably my first. I might have even gotten into that before I got into playing real uh, role-playing games on consoles. Um, so it was, uh, you know, I give the Pokemon series credit despite being, you know, a, uh, I don't know what you call it. Cockfight simulator. Yeah, cockfight <laughs> simulator of cute uh, animated creatures. I've got nothing to add to that one. <laughs> you might have a title of the show too. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I would go back and I would probably play the uh, the originals. On uh, I still have all of my Game Boys, and I have a lot of them. I have the original one, the big gray brick, and mm -hmm. then I have the Game Boy Pocket, which is. Which is actually the the limited edition ice blue Game Boy Pocket, which is so sexy. And then I think I got the Game Boy Color next, uh, which was teal. And then I bought a Game Boy Advance, which did not get that much play. And then I bought a DS for some reason. Um, oh, I think because I could play, 
I think the DS was like the first one to feature like Nintendo 64 games in a, uh, in a mobile sort of medium. Um, and I still have that one, but so I have a pretty, uh, pretty solid Game Boy lineup and I kind of miss it. The, uh, the handheld gaming. There's something to be said. I think I don't know how much you guys play. I don't even know if you're an iPhone user, Matt, but I don't think you are actually. Yeah. But, I'm uh, on, I'm on Android for whatever. Mm, but I don't know, uh, how much gaming you do on, on iOS rich, but there's still something to be said. I think that I've, I've never, I mean, I've downloaded plenty of games for iOS, but I think there's something to be said for tactile buttons as opposed to playing, um, games on a touch screen. Even like, uh, I can't think of any, any, but, uh, you know, even like playing like a, uh, a Super Nintendo game or something on an emulator is not the same as playing it with a controller with actual buttons and, and, you know, the experience is significantly different, if you ask me. Yeah. My question to you, to wrench this conversation slightly back to music, is, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, since you're, you're such an avid video gamer, are you familiar at all with the, uh, with the chip music, chip tune scene? I want to say no. And you say that I'm a, a big gamer and I was, I'm significantly less of a gamer now just because, you know, adulthood gets in the way. And I don't know how people find the time to, uh, to dedicate hours of their lives to playing video games. But I did have a very large video game phase, uh, in my youth and, um, I loved it and I wish I had the time to spend and to keep up with the, the industry, um, like I used to. But, but no, I'm not familiar with the chip, uh, scene. However, I am a big fan of video game music, and uh, I don't know if I mentioned it on the show before, but there's a YouTube user, and Rich, I'll let you explain what you're talking about in a second, <laughs> but uh, forget uh, video game music. There's a guy that like has like a 200 video series on YouTube, and oh, right now. I'll put it in the show notes, but it's uh, like 200 videos, and each of them is like 10 minutes of, of various video game soundtracks, and I'm a huge huge fan of those. They just, you know, really bring me back to my youth. And especially I have in my iTunes these the soundtracks to Final Fantasies seven, eight, and nine and Chrono Cross, which are four of my favorite games. I still put them on on a fairly regular basis and, and bask in the glory of my childhood. Um, <laughs> anyway, no it's just music. Okay. Uh well chip music is this electronic music subgenre. And we go full circle. Uh but the instruments used, uh, what the people do is typically they take old Game Boys, other portable gaming systems. Some people actually use old Nintendos or Sega systems and this and that. And with running custom software to create music using that same sound palette as the video game music of your childhood. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you really like, you know, the sounds that made up the music in your video games this is the sort of thing you'd be interested in too um you know it's it's a it's own like micro genre because there's there's stuff in there that's melodic stuff in there that's harsh stuff in there that's like in, almost like industrial music but it's all done in that sort of 8-bit or sometimes 16-bit palette yeah. and i've oh. got some it's not something i'm huge into but i have some friend, a couple friends who are into that scene yeah i uh i'm I, a fan of 8-bit uh, music, and I think that, you know, speaking of Umphreys, Umphreys has released a couple of their tracks in 8-bit format, um, which is really cool. And when I saw them at the Calvin Theater, I just saw them on Thursday at the Calvin Theater, one of the best shows I've ever seen from them. We can talk about later, though the show is kind of running long. Um, but uh, they brought out a guest musician of theirs who, like, specializes in transforming songs into that sort of 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System style. 
Um, and it was pretty cool. So yeah, I'm a fan of the, of the Apic music and, uh, you know, everything beyond that as far as video game soundtracks go. And, um, I just threw in the robot a link to dot chip.com, D A C H I P. And I'll throw that in the show notes, which bringing things completely full circle are a couple of, um, cover albums by like, uh, they're, they're kind of tribute albums, but they're, they're eight bit chip tune cover albums of Daft Punk. Nice. So there you go. <laughs> uh, well, this is going yeah, to basically guy. be the entire episode if we don't uh, move on to the other picks, too. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Rudo is the YouTube user that uh, he's got. Uh, if you go to his profile there that I just threw in the robot, he's got like four volumes of the music of video games. And they're all uh, there's, you know, he's got like 600 videos uh, all together of all different kinds of of. Uh, of video games from, you know, Nintendo. He's got Mega Man 2 is the first one all the way up to, you know, mod video games. So it's great. Uh, I love it. Cool. Um, mm. Yeah. So since my pick was also electronic, do uh, you want to go first, Matt, and then we can have a nice electronic sandwich around Cats and Jammer or? Yeah, that works. Um, Cats and Jammer um, is my pick this week. And I uh, went from their uh, first album called Lay Pop, which is currently the only one available in the U.S., which are, but um, they've got another one called A Kiss Before I Go, and I am doing the research for this thing. I found they actually just did a live version, a live album and Blu-ray uh, in Europe only of uh, A Kiss Before I Go live in Hamburg. So, neat. Um, I can let you give you a couple of guesses to what I'm probably going to have to order from Amazon UK. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I I love Cats and Jammer. Um they are a uh, quartet of uh, Norwegian inst- uh, multi-instrumentalists. And it's kind of funny because, like, they pretty much all can play about everything. And and even even in the band, there isn't really, like, a dedicated, you know, person for any instrument. It's like, they they swap all the time. It's, you know, it's like, on one, one track, one of them will play the accordion, the other track, another one will play the accordion... They, you know, move the bio, bio uh, balalaika bass around. It's, it's really cool. Um, the, the track that I chose was, uh, uh, Play My Darling Play, which I had to think of because I was like either that or tea with cinnamon and I couldn't remember which one I chose. And if you had asked me last night, I would have bet money that I had chosen tea with cinnamon, but I did not. So, <laughs> so, and, and that's not like a, a diss on Play My Darling Play. It's just a matter of that there's so many great songs on this record that it's sort of like, you know, which one is the favorite? It changes from day to day. But anyway, here is a bit of Play My Darling Play. If I wanted to be really evil, I could have I could, I could slip in a clip of uh, Team of Cinnamon instead. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> you should do that, Rich. Totally do that. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> oh, and, that would be awesome. <laughs> betray the listeners like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
<laughs> anyway, ah, okay, I, I, I'm I, I'm calmed back down, so I can I can actually go back to talking now. I think. <laughs> um. So anyway, though, that was uh, Plymouth Our Own Play, and or was it? Or was it? <laughs> and I I. I, I just love this record. Um, basically, how I got turned on to them was through work. Um, at, at my work, we make these like kind of compilations of songs that are, are will be potential hits. And there, there, there's even like, and there's a, a disc that's specially formulated for the UK. And I mean, there's a lot of crossover stuff, of course, but there's a lot of stuff that's like kind of, you know, Europe only and. Uh, one of those Europe-only tracks was uh, Cats and Jammers' Demon Kitty Rag, which is also on this record. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. I I, I just played it because, you know, it's sort of like every, every so often it's sort of like you get stuff that, you know, you don't you don't know at all. And it's like, you know, there, there are worse ways to kill, you know, three minutes. And if it sucks, you can just turn it off immediately, of course. Mm-hmm. So so anyway, I threw it on. I was like, oh, my God, this is like completely my thing. And I just like played it over and over and over, and I immediately looked them up and was like, "Oh my god, they, I got to get this album!" And you know, I just you know basically fell in love right then and there. And yeah, I mean, it's one where um, I don't know if either of you have heard of the Diddy Bops. I have negative. Okay, um, I've heard of them thanks to t- you, actually. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, and to me, the um, Cats and Jammer and the Diddy Bops are kind of in that same vein. That kind of neo ragtime cabaret-y kind of thing. Um, like I, I, I mean, it's like, like I think, and I think there is kind of like a divide where like uh, the D-Bops are kind of more of the, you know, historically the more American side of that kind of genre, and Cats and Jammer are the more European evolution of that genre. Like, you know, it's just the way that the Similar musics can kind of diverge, and I'm I'm not even talking nowadays. I'm talking, you know, back, you know, back in the twenties, you know, where this is very much, uh, from which this is very much inspired. Um, but yeah, I like I I don't listen to a lot of twenties music, <laughs> um, and I guess like the handful of twenties music I listen to is what is uh, turned by uh, one of my friends, uh, Nick Morrison, who's at uh, DJ at uh, KPLU uh, here in uh, uh, Western Washington uh, as that R. Crumb shit. <laughs> and I don't really think that, you know, Cats and Jammer or D- the Diddy Bops are either really fall into that, that category of, you know, that R. Crumb shit, but I-, I-, I could at least see, like, maybe R. Crumb, like, finding some modern music that's not entirely horrible. You know, or at least for for his taste. But um, but yeah, I love Cats and Jammer. Definitely get uh, their album Lay Pop and uh, start bugging people so the other uh, albums will be released in the U.S. And yeah, it's, that's that's your homework for today. If if you like whatever song it is that Rich put in. <laughs> and I, I enjoyed the hell out of this album. Um, it's uh, it's the sort of thing I've been meaning to get more into. I mean. I know you met, you mentioned the Diddy Bops, and uh, I know that it's reminds me a little bit of another, which reminds me a little bit of another record that I picked up on your recommendation, uh, which was uh, the Bandana Splits. Mm, yeah, but they're much more uh, a period piece, despite being a contemporary act. 
Yeah, I kind of think of the bandana splits as a little bit more girl groupy and like maybe not like like there's the also the Papini sisters who are more of an Andrews sister kind of kind of thing, but but contemporary. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I you know there's there's a bit of that retro throwback that they're all kind of doing different different flavors of uh, retro. Yeah, so there's a. But yeah, it's sort of like you get kind of a cross between the bandana splits and Google Bordello, if you're familiar with them. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, Google Bordello is sort of like Balkan punk. You know, all like a lot of folk instruments, and they're just like very intense. I saw them play live. They're doing an acoustic show, a free acoustic show back in Philly a couple years ago, and it's just even stripped down, they were still intense. Um, and they're multi instrumentalists too, I think. So, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's definitely got that, uh, ethno-European kind of flair, which is which is always fun. And it's one of the few... Th- first, I actually played a little bit for my girlfriend, who she and I have very divergent musical tastes, and she enjoyed it too, so... Yay! I, I like spreading harmony wherever I go. Mm-hmm. I've seen uh, Gogol Bello open for Les Claypool, or I think... I don't even know if I've actually seen them open, but I know that they have opened several times. And uh, Eugene... Hoots Hutz is the, uh, I guess the kind of the front guy, and he did a song with um, Claypool on a fun guy and foe. His last, uh, less his last solo record called "Bite Out of Life," and uh, it's an it's an interesting track. But anyway, I'll put that in the show notes as I will with everything. <laughs> um, I like this record too, and uh, maybe not loved the hell out of it like Rich did but I found it very pleasant uh, and enjoyable I remember liking Waiting in Deeper actually as the most enjoyable track uh, I forget why I think the vocals or something like that um, but it's kind of out of my to use an old meme from the show it's kind of out of my wheelhouse a little bit um, being this sort of female pop uh, outfit um but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. It was, uh, I liked the songs and, uh, I thought it was, it was quite listenable and enjoyable overall. So I approve. <laughs> Sweet. Sweet. Um, yeah. So I wish we had one more to say about it, but it, it is a, it is a fun record and it, it's, it's definitely got a great palette of, uh, instruments on it too. Yeah. And it's, like I said too, it's like, I think, I think each of them can play something like 12 instruments each. Hmm. It's something absurd like that, where and they they all met in a uh, Norwegian music academy, and which kind of makes sense considering that they can play everything in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. There needs to be more more bands like that that just do all kinds of crazy instruments. Um, speak and so I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll just I guess we'll segue into the last pick because this is yeah <laughs> we spent a lot of time talking about Daft Punk and electronic music and so let's try another type of electronic music. My pick this week is the newest album by electronic musician Dan Deacon, uh, and it is called America. Um, and Fuck my- yeah! <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> uh, high explicit tag. No. Um. So. Um. I'm not a huge Dan Deacon fan. Oh wait, maybe I should introduce the pick, the song first. Um, the uh, my hook, but the song I'd like to play from this one is uh, the first track from the sort of USA America themed suite. Uh, USA One is a monster. 
and um, here's a little bit of that now. My dick and suck on my balls. <laughs> oh dear! Is that a real lyric? Yeah, isn't that like near the end? Oh, I mean, I, think I must have missed that. <laughs> I mean, of of, of um, America, fuck yeah, not not. Oh, <laughs> I was like, Dan, come on, you. <laughs> I'm gonna cut. Oh, that is so getting cut. Um, so yeah, I leave it in. Yeah, I'm not a huge Dan Deacon I- fan. Uh, I've, I've tried checking out some of his older stuff. I've got the album of his, uh, Spider-Man of the Rings, and I just found it a little too, mm, what's the right word? Cause it's been a while since I even listened to it. Kind of like just harsh and glitchy and, but I've heard so many good things about America and it's, it's sort of like a change of style for him. So I figured it'd be worth checking out and it's a much lusher, it's still got some of the, uh, harsh elements of the, uh, stuff from earlier, but it's much more subdued, I think. And it's a much ple- more pleasant listen. And if he moves, continues in this direction, I'm really going to be impressed. Uh, there's actually also non- non-instrumental in- or instrumentation, yeah, non-electronic instrumentation on this. There's some, a lot of uh, there's some orchestral bits, which I found very pleasing. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a sucker for juxtaposing, for juxtaposing acoustic and electronic instruments. One thing I'd love to do is learn to play acoustic guitar and develop my electronic music skills and combine the two. So, hey, we're back to acoustic instruments. Uh, <laughs> Boom. So I just thought this was a very gorgeous, very lush piece of uh, music, and uh, it seemed like a good also counterpart to or contrast to Daft Punk. So, mm. yeah, I enjoyed that? this um, quite a bit, and um, but it's interesting because it kind of represents the the struggle that I have with electronic music, and that is that sometimes it's very listenable, and sometimes it is significantly not listenable. And like when I put on the first track, Guilford Avenue Bridge, I was like, oh, God, this is going to be loud and noisy and abrasive. And I think harsh is one of the words that you used, uh, mm-hmm. Rich. And um, but then I, I got through that one and I was like, all right. And then it got to uh, True Thrush. And I really found myself enjoying that that song because it is a little bit more melodic and subsequently a little bit more listenable and uh trying to skipping through it really quick i think i enjoy the the background harmonies and stuff and it just is a little bit more pleasant to the ear um for me and so for the record as a whole kind of had those those kind of more harsh moments and those more melodic and enjoyable moments and for me i i like the uh the uh, the more musical and a little bit less noisy i'm just looking at the uh, the wikipedia article as i do and uh, it says that Rolling Stone's John Dolan gave the album a mixed review, writing, The most enjoyable bits here are the least grandiose, like the zippy pastoral true thrush. And I think that's kind of uh, an, inter- an interesting point to make, because uh, USA One is a monster, is tends to be kind of sweeping and uh, feels more grandiose um, and a little bit harsher or at least a little bit more dissonant than something like true thrush um 
So overall, this is a record that I'm going to need to listen to again. Uh, and I'm sure once I become more familiar with it, I will um, probably come to enjoy it uh, even more than I did the first time. But I like the sense of, you know, it's called America and there's that great photo of Lake Placid on the front. And so you kind of have this feeling of of landscapes and the the album itself kind of evokes this concept of, of soundscapes, um, which is kind of a nice dichotomy relationship uh, trope. So I like it. This is a record I'm going to put on again and uh, hopefully become more familiar with and subsequently enjoy it uh, more, I hope. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I dug it a lot too. Um, I actually had it already, but I hadn't listened to it yet. So I I listened to it. <laughs> and yeah, I, I dug it. I mean, I, I've been at least sort kind of sort of familiar with Dan Deacon anyway. Like uh, on one of his early ones, like he did this song that I don't even remember the name of the song, but it's like, it sounded like cats meowing, and, but it was like in a cool way, not just, you know, setting up a mic in front of a cat and letting it go to town, but I mean, in a, in a musical way. <laughs> but and not, like, um, and not like jingle cats. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, so I, I, I'd known Dandy before and, uh, but yeah, I really dug this. This was like, um, a little bit different than I was expecting too, just because like this one was like, I, like, I got like way more of an Eno vibe from it. And I mean, especially the, the kind of quieter Eno, of course. Not, not stuff like Kingsland Hat or, or whatever, but, um, more like another, but just sort of a, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and then kind of the, kind of a weird combination of Eno and Sufjan Stevens Hmm. is the, with this, the, it again had that like orchestral quality that the Sufjan had, but also in that kind of weird indie way where it just seems kind of like they're like, and I, I think I kind of stumbled there too, trying to describe what I mean, but it was just sort of that where it, 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 it has this kind of homemade quality, even though it's orchestral. Hmm. And I don't know. I, I just really dig it, dug it, even though it was really not what I was expecting even from Dan Deacon. Cause a lot of his stuff is so much noisier. It's, you know, but yeah, but I, 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 I liked it. Well, I guess that's as best we can say about it, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, yeah. so in in the in the words of um some uh some brilliant philosophers, I I do have to say about this album, America, fuck yeah, boom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel bad because I still haven't actually seen uh, Team America uh, after all these years. I don't think I made it all the way through. I I liked it, but it's like one where like with some of the um. Trey Parker and Matt Stone, like political things, you kind of have to treat it almost as like an alternate universe that is like similar to ours, but not, you know, because like applied to the real world, a lot of their stuff doesn't really make a lot of political sense. It just seems kind of kind of naive and weird. But but yeah, I mean, with like with Team America World Police, it was it was like removed enough that I could enjoy it while probably disagreeing with them on a lot of stuff. Hmm. Cause it just seemed like, Oh, this is a goofy movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I, uh, I'm not sure. I'm a pretty big South park fan. Not that I watch it on a regular basis, but I'm a fan of the show. And I don't think I, uh, found the movie to be as enjoyable as, as South park. No, I'm South park is better. Yeah. 
And the South Park movie is a, is a masterpiece, honestly. I mean, that, that one. Oh, classic. Yeah. I mean, and I love that it's a legit musical, too. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that in years. I have to watch yeah, it again. Same here. I, I, I should sit down and rewatch that because it's been forever. Yeah, but it is. It, that, that is like really, really good. I mean, that, that one like is, you know, I do not have to make any, you know, hedging or anything about it. it that is like a wonderful movie. Mm. Yeah, it came out in 99. Yeah. Got some miles on it. Oh. Well, yeah. got nothing to add to that. But, oh, yeah. I'll, mm. uh, yeah, that's my train of thought. Um, yeah, so I think it's interesting. You know, picking these interesting, nice contrast between the two, go back, like, the school's electronic music, but uh, but not just the uh, the wide. Electronic music as a genre is just too nebulous to use. So, mm. all right, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we're kind of out of steam here, but... <laughs> Someone pulled the emergency break. <clears throat> we don't have a topic today, right? No, not, well, not really. I think... I saw Umphreys on Thursday, as I mentioned. Oh. And uh, right. I've seen... Uh, we okay? Yeah, go ahead. I was just... Oh, yeah, okay. you, you mentioned it earlier. Okay. Yeah, okay. All right, yeah. go, go, go. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I've seen... This is my 18th Umphreys show. And... Uh, it was it was at the Calvin Theater in Northampton, which is about an hour north from me, which turns out is like the lesbian capital of the earth, which I had no idea. Um, but now that I know that, and I've been going there for years, like I've seen the band there three or four times and uh, never knew that. And then when I, for some reason, when I mentioned that I was going, my sister and I went, uh, everyone was like, oh, that's the like the lesbian capital of the of the country. And now that I know that, I cannot unsee it. Um, but anyway. More power than Northampton. Uh, and this was probably one of my favorite Umphreys shows that I've ever seen. Oh, first of all, we should mention that the opening band, I don't know how you guys feel about opening bands. Maybe we could talk about that as a, as a brief topic. Um, the opening act, the Bright Light Social Hour, which I'm going to put some links in the show notes. Um, they came on and we were kind of, uh, we had seats. And the, the Calvin Theater is, they have a dance floor, which is general admission up front by the stage, but then that's, um, you know, regular auditorium seating and there's a balcony and so on. And we had seats because we bought tickets kind of last minute and uh, all of the general admission tickets had been sold out. Uh, so we had seats, uh, but we got there right when the doors opened and uh, there were no security guards at the bottom of the aisles. So we walked right onto the floor and uh, got against the stage and stayed there uh, for the entire time, as we tend to do. Um and the bright light social hour came on and we were kind of, you know, that's oh, going to be a drag. We have to sit through the opening act. And, you know, when you get there, when the door is open, you have an hour to wait until the show starts. And then you have to sit through an hour of opening act and then the half hour before Umphreys comes on and then two and a half hours for the Umphreys show. So you're standing for like five hours. Um, but so the bright light social hour was the opening act. And I had never heard of them before. My sister thought that she had seen them before because they all had long hair and they looked familiar. But they were really good. Like it was probably the best opening act that I have ever seen. Um, kind of like a bluesy, funky, indie, psychedelic sort of quartet. Um, and they struck me kind of as like a more interesting black keys, uh, guitar, bass, drums and keyboards. And uh, they were just really tight, really high energy, um, great songs, held my attention the entire time. Like sometimes an opening act will come on and they'll be like, oh, that first song was pretty good. And then, all right, second song was okay. And then by the third song, you're like, all right, that's enough. Um, but these guys held my attention the entire time. And uh, 
which was great. And I think it really had an influence on how tired I was by the end of Umphreys because I wasn't exhausted by the opening act. Um, I was actually energized by them, so that was great. But So check out the Bright Light Social Hour. They only have one record out so far, their debut album, and uh, just really good. And uh, maybe I'll actually use them as a pick next week after I get a little bit more familiar with their uh, their album. But anyway, so the Umphreys show was great, and I just want to uh, to mention one of the reasons it was so good was because they played Comfortably Numb in the first set, which was gorgeous. Um, I can put that in the in the uh, robot for you guys. And uh, then they did, speaking of, uh, we've talked about The Who a couple times, they went into Eminence Front uh, in the second set, which was just phenomenal. And, uh, you know, looking at the set lists for the shows before and after, um, this was clearly the show to catch uh, on the East Coast. So there's a link to it. And you can listen to little previews from the uh, the soundboard recording um, on each. But love on freeze as always. Catch them if they're in town. And there you go. Speaking of opening bands, uh, you mentioned uh, you know had you know first songs usually good. Second, I I always give an opening band three songs unless they're really atrocious. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've late, most of the shows I've been to lately have been like small club shows, so you never know what's going to be on the lineup. Just, you know, okay, this band is playing, I'm going to go see them, and I don't I, I don't like to be that guy who shows up just for one band, uh, though I did do that this past week, but whatever. Um, not, not this past week, but the week when, the week when I saw three shows. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, where was I? Yeah, like I said, I always try to give an opening band at least three songs. Um, I think the best... The show where I got the luckiest with opening bands was one of the first club shows I ever went to, seeing uh, Melt Banana uh, at the now-defunct Manhattan Knitting Factory. And um, the first band, I think I actually told the story, it was uh, Parts and Labor, who blew my mind just at the start of the show. And then there was, uh, yeah, when I mentioned, when I picked X Models, I told the story, because X Models was the second band that night. And of course, Melt Banana were Melt Banana and melted my face off. Um... I wish I could say I've had that kind of good luck with opening bands before. The only other show I've been to where I had... I seem to get lucky. Like, a lot of the shows, the bigger shows I've been to, I haven't had opening bands. Uh, when I went to see David Byrne St. Vincent, it was just them. There wasn't anyone opening. Um, when I went to see Devo a couple years back, uh, 2011, there was this bizarre but awesome Japanese performance art rock band called Triple Nipples with two Ps and... Uh, sorry, with three Ps in each word. Um, that kind of blew my mind, but they don't really have like any albums or anything out. So yeah, but yeah, that's just always my rule. If there's the band I'm not there to see, I give them three songs and after three songs, if they haven't won me over, that's my cue to just go over to the bar or something. Yeah. I, I, for me, it's like, I, I like the concept of opening bands and I, I, you know, and, and there have been like some really cool ones. Like, uh, like, uh, there, I actually, uh, was turned on to a band called Kato from, seeing them because like there was like a show where it was like uh the lineup was Cato, the apples and stereo who i was there to see and then clinic who to tell you the truth i i didn't really care for the time i think they've gotten better but it's still not really my thing you know but anyway though i mean i got we got there for um like uh kind of i think it was like either the about maybe halfway through or maybe like just at as they were starting of Cato and was like fucking blown away and uh you know just fell in love with them bought bought the records and everything and the apples did a really great show and then we bailed during clinic but (laughs) we gave them the three song rule (laughs) 
but um but yeah then the, and then the other funny kato story is is that like when they were around even though they're from norwich uk they played seattle all the time which is really weird but i'm i wasn't i wasn't complaining and there was one where it was like kind of funny because it was like the show was they were the second opener this time and it was a uh i think it was uh sushi robo who were i don't think they're around anymore and they're they were kind of mediocre anyway kato and then the walkman and it was like funny because everyone was there to see Cato. And it was like the first time I'd ever actually seen an opening band do an encore. Hmm. And then the funny thing is, is that the Walkman pretty much like about two thirds of the club left after Cato and the remaining third left about during the second or third song of the Walkman set. Wow. They sucked. <laughs> I, when was I, this? Uh, this was. God, I want to say 2003, maybe. Hmm. Like whenever, like I think it was like the the first Walkman album. Yeah, because I think they uh the Walkman just put out. I don't know if it's new. Or, it's fairly new. I think they just put out an album called Heaven, and um, the online musical communities that I run in um, adore that record. Yeah, it's really weird how the Walkman have become like beloved somehow because i mean maybe i haven't listened to them because like they're you know that show just turned me off on them and they just sleep seemed like slimy a and r guys anyway mm. like on stage and I ju- they just had this kind of vibe of you know we're we're slimy a and r guys that we you know put together a, a band to make money and i don't even know if this is true or not there's just the vibe that gave off they gave off and so it's like really kind of weird that they've become like this real banded stuff because they, they fucking blew that night, you know, like, what do you mean by A&R? Uh, uh, artists and repertoire, the, uh, the guys at, uh, record labels who sign, sign artists who are all like, uh, oh yeah, we're going to give you the world. Da, 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 da. Oh, hmm. <laughs> we lied. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> you owe us $50 million now. Yeah. Yeah. Heaven is the record that I'm thinking of. And it was released in 2012. Um, and people love it. I think uh, I have it, but I, I think I've got through a couple of tracks and I was like, eh, and kind of forgot about it. Yeah. So. I've, I've never gone back to the Walkman. I've got no desire to, I just find it weird that like this, this shitty band that, you know, you couldn't pay people to stay for, <laughs> you know, but yeah, it was, it was really funny because it was like very clearly the bill was misdone. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, because like, you know, Cato got this really great response. They came back for an encore, which is unheard of for an opening band. And then it cleared out as soon as they were gone. <laughs> so, but yeah, but I, but in general though, I mean, I, there've been a lot of shitty opening bands that I've been to, of course. Um, like I think I've told the story of passive aggressive fist before. Uh, but yeah, but like in general, I, I try to go there for the opening band. Unless I know them beforehand, I know that they suck. Yeah. But I mean, that said too, I also really do like the an evening with kind of thing too, just because, well, sometimes you just want to see the band and you're just sort of like, you know, I don't want to have to stay for another hour to, you know, sit through something which may or may not, you know, suck. And I think it's just a function of getting older where it's sort of like, cause like I can't stand up that long anymore. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> like when you, with like what you were talking about is like, I like with the Umphreys show, I, the, like no matter how good they were, I would have sat in the seat because otherwise my back would be screaming about like halfway through the opener. And yeah. Yeah. And cause I mean, that, and that's like the sad thing is like, cause I remember like one time I was seeing like Shona knife and there was a kick-ass show and I fucking love Shona knife, 
but like I was like kind of actually hoping against an encore just because my back was screaming mm-hmm. and ended up like basically they, they did an encore, which was awesome. And it was like a Ramones cover set. And then I like as like I sat down and like my uh, girlfriend and her friend went over to meet the band. And I was just like, you kids go along and have fun. Mm-hmm. I got to I got to sit a spell. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> I think the worst concert uh standing sort of experience um was actually at that umphrey's show uh where they played voyager because it was january of this year um it was either that one or or a different one it was the one where they played roundabout hang on uh okay so january of last year actually um and it was in the middle of january and i think it was just my sister and i again and uh you know it was january and we're from connecticut so we took the train in and uh, we were wearing our, you know, our snow, our winter jackets. And um, we got up. We are we're against the rail people like we go, we get there early and we tend to stand or sit, stand or sit through the opening uh, act just so we can, you know, reserve our spot up front. Um, and the this particular Humphrey show, we got pretty close to the front, I think. Uh, and we decided not to uh, check our coats right away. For whatever reason, I forget. Uh, maybe because there was a huge line at the at the Best Buy Theater. Um, but by the end, you know, by the middle or the end of the second, the first set, we were dying, standing there holding these heavy ski jackets, and uh, you know, it was packed, and uh, we were so hot and uncomfortable and sore. And eventually, we uh, in between sets, we tried to go and check our coats, um, but the coat check was full; like they were sold out of hangers or something oh, wow. yeah Ooh. so we had to uh for the second set we um stood on the second tier because there's like a, a dance floor up close to the stage and then there's a second dance floor that's raised where the soundboard is and then there are seats um in the back back um so we ended up standing but it was it was exhausting uh standing through that whole thing so it is sometimes nice to have seats like we had seats for the Boston Primus show uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it was great because, number one, we didn't have to deal with any mosh pits. Number two, we could get there five minutes before the band started. Uh, number three, it was an evening with Primus. So there was no opening act to sit through. And we could, you know, you could sit down during the encore or in, in the encore break. And uh, it was it was very nice. Uh, so getting old is is painful. <laughs> yeah. Don't yeah. have the stamina that we once had. Quite. Yeah, my worst standing experience actually was a few years ago, and I went to see Thomas Dolby at World Cafe Love in Philadelphia, and they're one of those venues that's, you never know if there's going to be seats. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I love the World Cafe, but you know, some shows they're seated, some shows there's, it's a dinner show where there's tables and seats and you get to have food before the show. Some shows it's just general admission. Um, and this one was Thomas Dolby and some guy... Uh, th- this artist named BT. Uh, oh, and, oh yeah, I know him. Yeah, you might have even seen the same tour. Uh, um, I I think I missed that tour, but I I do know BT. Is that okay. he didn't play the the uh West Coast states? I don't remember. But either way, though, yeah, I know. Either way, yeah. Um, I'd never heard of BT. I checked out some of his stuff online before the show. Like, eh, whatever. Uh, but I went for I went to see Thomas Dolby because yeah, you know, Thomas Dolby. Yeah, and yeah, this was back before he had the new album was even a, a thing. So I'm like, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to see him play again. So, um, yeah, I went to see Thomas Dolby, and it was a standing show. And he put on a good set, but it was a long setup for BT. 
and my back was just freaking out and killing me. And then BT started his set, and it was like, all I could hear was bass. All I could hear was bass. Mm. And this is in a venue that is really great sound quality. I've never had a problem except for that one show at World Cafe when it came to hearing anything. So huh. I figured, I since I this was one of the first shows where I had my three three song rule. So yeah, because that even applies to just that applies to any band I didn't come to see. So sat and I ended up going over to the back wall of the down. There was no seats at the bar, so I, I and I was actually too young to drink. I think that that ever. No, it wasn't too young to drink. But uh, I sat down and literally sat down with my back against the on the dance floor on the with my back against the raised part where the bar was for a little while so i could get through the third song and then i decided fuck it i'm not enjoying myself i'm in pain i'm leaving and the problem was that leaving meant i missed the really awesome encore where thomas dolby performed uh airwaves which is one of my favorite songs with bt oh damn because that that i love airwaves too that's a great song yeah yeah i still haven't heard him perform airwaves yeah. Was that the uh, Soul Inhabitant tour? No, that was uh, after the Soul Inhabitant tour. Okay, because that was that was the tour that I saw him on was the Soul Inhabitant one, two thousand six. Yeah, this was like two thousand seven or eight. Uh, okay, because I definitely saw the Soul Inhabitant tour. That was the first time I ever saw him, and it was at this tiny little theater in the Poconos that I had to take the train to get to, and then bum a ride from some friends of mine who were in the area who were going to see Thomas Dolby as well. So that was fun. Um. But yeah, just you guys wear earplugs. Uh, yes, I just started Air, all the time. <laughs> Do you have special earplugs, or are they just like regular foam squishy earplugs? Um, I um, I actually use uh, swimmers earplugs. They're the plastic mm-hmm. kind of like silicone uh, molded thing that have like little tears, and yeah. they they fit pretty well. Okay. Mm. I and just... doesn't diminish your experience. No, it, it improves it. Mm. it. What it does is it it rolls off a lot of the low rumble. Mm-hmm. That you get with like, especially with shitty PAs, and it it really b- lets you uh, hear the the other stuff a lot better than you would normally, and it just like, and you can still hear the bass, of course, but it's just not because well, as as you know, I mean, with the lower frequencies, you have to make them louder so you can hear them, mm-hmm. and with a shitty PA, you crank them way up so you get like rumble, 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 rumble. <laughs> And so when you, when you, you know, have the earplugs, it pulls out the rumba, 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 and you can actually hear the band. <laughs> yeah. I just started wearing earplugs. Uh, like the, when I went to see Nouvelle Vague, I'd just seen a fairly loud club show the night before. So I'm like, you know what? My, my hearing is kind of sensitive tonight. I, I should go pick up some earplugs, earplugs. And I picked up some foam ones from, uh, a Walgreens or a Dwayne Reed somewhere between, uh, work in the venue. And, it really worked. I was personally surprised. I tried earplugs at other shows, and I just maybe I didn't have the right kind because they didn't work. I like I couldn't hear anything, mm-hmm. and so the next day, uh, just as I'm leaving work, I put in an order for some good quality Enomotics, uh ones. They've got the they're not the swimmers kind because they actually do have a hole that runs through them. Mm-hmm. But they got that trot triple flange thingamabobber, and I actually bought two pairs because Cassandra. Uh, she doesn't like good. She she's um not fond of like really really loud stuff at concerts, especially especially the crowd at some shows. They get mm-hmm. really loud. And I was actually pleasantly surprised when just with the foam ear 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 plugs during Nouvelle Vague. I remember I didn't know they were going a second encore, so I took mine out. Uh, just bef- 
before they came back to do their second encore, and I just like, holy shit, there's a whole bunch of people in this room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing I love with the earplugs, is that they, they really do pull out a lot of the, un- the the stuff that you don't want anyway. You know, like yeah. the, the crowd and the rumba rumba and, and whatnot. It's it, it makes it, to me, it makes it so much clearer, and I'm always like, surprised when like you know i'm like oh do you want to get earplugs for the show or, or whatever or you want me to you know lend you some of my extras or something and they're like oh no and it's like oh okay yeah <laughs> i'll be here enjoying the show <laughs> yeah my dad has always been a proponent of of earplugs and i have yet to to really use them but i'm starting to think that maybe it would it would be a good idea um, so if you guys have, uh, recommendations like Rich, if you want to put those Eddie, you know, Eddie, whatever you bought, uh, in the, uh, in the show notes, I'd be interested in your recommendations, both of you. Um, yeah, I, I usually just use, uh, what are, what are the brand name is heroes, like mm-hmm. here, like H E A R. Yeah. And they, I just use like the cheap smears ones cause they do have the hole in them, but it doesn't seem to matter that much because the, with the, the three flangey dealy. It, it it tends to fit your ear better anyway, so I see. you know the the hole doesn't seem to matter too awful much, and and the hole doesn't go all the way through; it just goes through the the peg, I think. Yeah. So I, uh, I, my I hurt my finger the other day. Yeah. I'm looking at my anamoxis and the hole looks like it does go all the way through. Oh, okay. I um I hurt my finger the other day, and it was inhibiting my bass playing, and. uh you know, I was kind of, it just made me realize, like, my hearing, you know, being a musician and a huge music fan, uh, my fingers and my ears are very, uh, important to me. And if I lost either of them, it would be, uh, devastating. So I'm starting to, uh, thinking about being a little bit more cautious about them. Yeah. Don't, and don't blame you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, and the, the thing is, is like, cause like the very first time I did earplugs, I was sort of like, this is gonna suck, but I can always take them out. And then I was like, yeah. just like shocked that it actually made it better. And I did, I wasn't deaf after the show. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, I remember yeah. like, the time I saw the Mighty Giants, I was like, man, that was awesome. I know, right? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember coming, I remember waking up the next morning after seeing, um, a new Vogue and like, oh my God, my ears aren't buzzing as much. Uh, <laughs> Because <laughs> you, you you know you know that the after seeing a band you know you get home and you get it's not the ringing of tinnitus it's just that like uh, sound yeah 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 I've never had a ringing too badly I mean I've had a little bit of of the buzzing after a show but nothing that you know didn't go away shortly thereafter but still better be safe than sorry. Yeah, and that's one of those things where they always say that, like, that basically means that you've just lost a chunk of your hearing that you'll never get back. Mm. What? So. <laughs> <laughs> means you've lost a chunk of your hearing that you'll never get back. <laughs> I lost a chunk of my breading? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never get the rack? Okay. <laughs> we need that one on the ground. You guys want to wrap, let's wrap this one up, I guess, because it, it's going to half an hour and a half. <laughs> so, but yeah, earplugs, we endorse them. Uh, so where can we find each other online? I'm at kittysneezes.com, K-I-T-T-Y-S-N-E-E-Z-E-S.com. And also on Kitty Sneezes on Tumblr and Twitter and all sorts of looty blops. Mm. 
And I'm andrewmarvin.net uh, and at andrewmarvin on Twitter and all other internet services. Sandspoint.com, Sandspoint on Twitter, Sandspoint on the app.net, Sandspoint um, on whatever you want to think of. And we're, of course, crushonradio.com, Crush on Radio on Twitter, Crush on Radio on iTunes. Leave us a review. Love us. We love you. And your mm-hmm. hearing, which is why we endure his earphones. Er, he- earplugs. <laughs> this episode of Crush on Radio is brought to you by... Earplugs. <laughs> <laughs> the, ear, the, the earplug industry of America. <laughs> we proudly salute them. Yes. Uh, nice talking to you guys. Good show. I concur. Yeah, bye. Bye. Bye-bye.